Good morning all, welcome to Summerfield Church. It is really wonderful to have you with us uh, today. We're going to be looking at this passage from 1 Thessalonians, uh, which might perhaps uh, come out of nowhere for you. Um, we've been working our way through uh, John's Gospel and we finished that recently. And over the next few weeks we're going to be reflecting uh, on a few sermons, a few passages that are often associated with what the church has called Advent. Now we're familiar with Christmas and we're familiar with Easter, moments, particular moments in the year where we remember and reflect on ways in which God has dealt with humankind. Uh, but there are a whole bunch of different times over the year that the church has traditionally reflected on particular aspects of God's kindness to us. Uh, not only do we have Christmas, but we have a feast called Epiphany. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. It's a feast that celebrates the Magi coming to visit Jesus. It was the first time in which non-Jews got to see how God engaged with this world in the person of Jesus. Uh, there's a feast of Pentecost, where God gave his spirit to work within us, to make us his children. Uh, there's a feast of the Transfiguration, which remembers the time in which Jesus' glory was seen at the top of the mountain by his disciples. They saw him in all of his glory. And actually at the moment, although Christmas is just around the corner, we're celebrating what the church is often Advent. Advent is a time of year in which we reflect on God coming to us in Jesus. Jesus comes in human flesh as he's born at Christmas. But Jesus is going to come again, isn't he, as well? He's going to come the second coming. And Advent is a time of year in which we reflect not only on Jesus' first coming, but the fact that he will come again to bring in fullness the salvation that is prepared for us. And so that's why we're looking at this passage from 1 Thessalonians today, chapter 5, is reflecting on Jesus' second coming in his return. How about a pray, and then we'll dive into this together. Our dearest Father, we do thank you that in your kindness you are not a distant God. You do not stand at a distance from us. You come to us in the person of your son. You've done that in his birth, that we celebrate Christmas, and you've promised that the Lord Jesus will return again. Father, we ask that you will work in us today as we reflect on this passage, that you might strengthen our faith and our hope and our love as we reflect on that sure and certain promise of the return of the Lord Jesus, that our hearts might be comforted as we remember that he is coming again. In Jesus' name. Well, I wonder if you tend to view yourself as uh, either a pessimist or an optimist. I know there's going to be some of you here going, no, 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 I'm a realist. There's those people out there. There's those people who are like, I'm not a pessimist or an optimist, I'm a realist. But to be honest, I think most of us really do end up slipping into one of those two categories. Either optimistic about the future or pessimistic about the future. Maybe there's this way in which most of us relate to the future in one of two ways. Maybe we view the future as an unpredictable and unstable reality that needs to be risk-managed. You see that, don't you, in preppers? Uh, those who are always prepping for the worst possible outcome, storing up uh, perhaps tin soup, uh, cans of tin soup and what, all the rest, making sure that whatever bad eventuality you might wait, you're prepared for it. And then there are those who might call themselves futurists, those for whom the horizon of the future has boundless opportunities just waiting to be explored and harnessed. They're excited about the open-ended nature of the, the future. 
future. It is something that they can make out of whatever they wish if they're just imaginative enough. Two pretty different ways of imagining and relating to the future. How to think about the future, how to live with the future in mind, was a question that the church of Thessalonica was struggling and grappling with. They didn't know exactly how to think about, how to live with the future in mind. And that's what Paul is addressing for them in today's passage. Have a look at me at the opening verses of chapter 5. We're on page 1188. And I'm going to read the first three verses. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. What people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And the day of the Lord that Paul reflects on here is referring to the second coming of Christ, the second coming of Jesus. It's what we might call the second advent of Jesus. It's a day on which Christ's currently hidden authority over the whole world is going to become plainly visible to all people. Paul is drawing to our attention to this aspect of the future, an aspect of the future that's going to unsettle both those who think that they can be preppers, they can have everything sorted and in hand, and those who are the futurists amongst them, those who think that the future is theirs to make of it what they The day of the Lord, Paul says, is actually going to be unpredictable and unavoidable. Unpredictable and unavoidable. The prepper can't anticipate the arrival of the future that God has in store. They can't stop pile provisions for it. And the futurists can't envisage or dream or imagine their own version of the future into existence. The day of the Lord will come completely apart from whether we're prepared for it or not. On the day of the Lord, the God who stands outside of and distinct from all of creation will suddenly appear within it with all the advance notice of the thief in the night. And nowhere. So Paul says, don't waste your time, don't waste your anxiety with speculation about times and dates, about when that appearing, that second advent might be. The day of the Lord isn't like the seasons which predictably cycle one after the other. The same every year. The day of the Lord can't be forecast like the rise and fall of the ocean tides, or tracked like the surging swirl of a tsunami moving between one continent and the next. The Lord's coming is beyond and outside of all human power and anticipation. Now, of course, that doesn't prevent people from trying, does it? You've probably come across many occasions where people have a crack at saying when the Lord Jesus will return. Uh, in fact, Sir Isaac Newton, a famous scientist, well-known for developing the theory of gravity, thinking about how our planets and the solar system relate to each other, how they follow their paths through the heavens, he was able to predict and understand a good deal of what was going on there in the heavens, and yet he also expected that he could anticipate the future, the, the future day of the Lord Jesus' return. He came up with his own and published his own works about when he imagined the Lord Jesus would return, before which day he wouldn't, when he might, when he was most likely to appear again. 
predictions about the physical nature of the universe are completely of a different kind to our guessing about what Lord Jesus has in store with his second advent or his second return. Jesus returns simply won't conform to the rhythms and rules of the physical universe in the same way that the moving planets and gravity planets. Friends, our time will be better spent preparing for a zombie outbreak and for attempting to predict the return of the Lord Jesus. Don't let spiritual preface fool you with utterly vain speculation without data standards. You've probably come across it that many believers predicting what the future holds is the source of their confidence. When they feel that they've got the future mapped out, they feel safe and secure in their belief. When someone shows them some other date or some other detail in the Bible that throws their speculations into turmoil, they lose all confidence and anxiety over them. That is not at all. Our believers, our followers of Jesus are to experience and think about the future, as we'll see as we prepare, as we continue to move through this passage. Our technological advances have given humanity unprecedented control in engineering the course of our Nowadays, even the inevitable and inescapable birth pains of giving birth to a baby can perhaps be managed by, you know, comprehensive health insurance with an epidural and a C-section. We imagine that even that something like, like a giving birth is something that we can have some measure of control and power over. But when Paul speaks of birth pains there in verse 3, in the ancient world, he's thinking of that which is completely unpredictable, that which is completely uncontrollable, something that lies beyond our ability to comfortably manage. That's why Paul draws on that image of something coming on us like the pain of childhood, unexpected and unstoppable. Yet Jesus finds their sense of security about the future, neither in our ability to predict it or to control it. That's not where Christians find confidence or a settled peace of mind. It doesn't depend on our ability to predict it or to control it. Instead, have a look at me at verse 4 and what follows there. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others. Who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Paul says there, you are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. It's not our ability to predict or to control the future. What gives followers of Jesus comfort and security about the future is the knowledge that we belong to the future. That's what gives Christians their confidence and peace about what's to come. Paul says we belong to the future that the Lord Jesus is bringing. We will be at home in it. I don't know if you've ever had to deal with a child who is afraid of the dark. Uh, most of us have probably been uh, afraid of the dark ourselves, uh, if not had to deal with a younger one who is a little bit scared of the dark. We often don't feel at picture, we often don't feel it if we belong in the dark. There is that which is unseen, that which arouses our anxieties and our fears, 
nervousness. Now, perhaps we can mitigate some of that anxiety by having a nightlight. I don't know if any of you have ever had a nightlight like yourself, or those blowy stickers that stick on the roof that give you some sense that you're not alone in the darkness. But the truth is, nothing can comfort an anxious child like the light of the sun, can it? No nightlight, even if it can give momentary comfort and peace of mind, no nightlight can give as much peace and settledness as the sun actually rising again and dispelling all darkness from that bedroom in which they are fretfully trying to sleep. And likewise, the truth is the same for us as believers. Although Paul describes this current life as that which is in darkness, Paul says in the future, won't be something to be anxious about, it will be like the sun dawning, the way in which the sun dawning brings peace and calm to an anxious child's mind. So the same would be true of our experience of that day. Calm and peace. We will find a time in which we belong to it. Uh, have a look at me at verse, verse 6 again. Verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, Paul writes, So then, since we belong to the day that's coming, so then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake, and so For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. What exactly does Paul mean by this double metaphor of being awake and sober rather than asleep and drunk? In what sense are God's people to be awake or watchful in contrast to those who are asleep. Now, the difference between a sleeping and awakening person is the degree to which they are conscious of the reality that lies beyond themselves. That's what makes sleeping people such great targets for practical jokes. Uh, they're not aware of what's going on around them. You can pretty much set anything up that you want and carry it out because they're not conscious of a broader reality that is lying around outside of their own dreams and imaginings. The sleeper, as we say, is dead to the world. They live, but with no conscious awareness of anything beyond their own immediate context. Some of us are not so much ignorant of the truth that Jesus will return, as we've simply allowed our awareness of his coming to slip to the back of our minds. Why do we do this? That habit of perhaps dulling our attentiveness to the fact that the scriptures point to the second advent of Jesus, the, the advent of Jesus coming again. Why do we so often let that truth dull in our thinking? Our drunkenness is used here as a metaphor, so I'm not going to dive into an in-depth moral analysis of misusing alcohol, how we do with drunk users. And yet there is a reason why people so often resort to drunkenness, isn't there, when overwhelmed by a sense of powerlessness about their life. When something about the future lies beyond our power or our control, dulling our thoughts with alcohol can seem the fastest way to mute and dampen our worries and our fears. If we've noticed that tendency in ourselves, I'd encourage you to do something about it. Come and chat with me, we can talk it through, because it's not a, a healthy way to deal with those fears and anxieties that can somehow overwhelm us. But Paul knows that tendency. He uses that tendency as a metaphor here. 
to urge us not to be fearful about reflecting on what the future holds for us. For it's not something that is to overwhelm us We're not to simply manage our anxiety by pressing mute on all thoughts of the future by dulling our attentiveness to Jesus' return. How exactly can we remain attentive and awake to Jesus' second advent and second coming without becoming overwhelmed by it? How do we keep sober eyes fixed on the fact that Jesus will return when the happy hour of a distracted life often seems to promise more immediate comfort and consolation. It all comes down to a matter of wardrobe, how we dress ourselves is the next metaphor that Paul turns to. Have a look with me to verse 8 and 9. Verse 8 and 9. Paul writes, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the amazing things about human survival throughout the ages has been our ability to dress ourselves for inhospitable environments. Uh, the first, um, uh, what looks like a, a, like a weak puffer jacket there on one side of the screen, uh, is actually, it is a kind of a puffer jacket, actually. It's a jacket that's made by Inuit Indians from seal guts. They blow the air in and it effectively became like an insulated puffer jacket that enabled them to traverse frozen, cold environments without their frail human frames falling to pieces. And then we can take that right through to the space age technology that allows something like the Apollo missions to take place to survive in inhospitable environments. What we dress ourselves in often shapes significantly how we experience life. And likewise, our own age is, is not one that's always very hospitable for God's people. We belong to a day that's different to the one that we're currently living. This is not an age that we're most naturally suited to. It's not an age we belong to. And Paul calls us to dress ourselves in that which will guide us, that which will preserve us until the day of the Lord Jesus, until his return. Paul says to dress yourself in three things I want to Paul says to dress yourself in faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. And it's striking just how often this little trilogy of faith, hope, and love are used by the New Testament writers to give shape to what the Christian life should look like. Here, faith and love are described as armor or as protective wear that enable us to feel at ease and secure in this current age in which we describe. And I think Paul gives most attention to hope. We'll reflect on faith and love in a moment. But he gives most attention to hope. Hope fixes our attention on the end goal, the ultimate destiny for which our lives are headed. This salvation includes. Hope of salvation, Paul describes as a helmet. It includes a whole range of things. We often think of salvation perhaps as just our forgiveness from sins, and it's certainly that, but it's not only that. This salvation includes our adoptions as God's children. This salvation of hope includes our adoption as God's children, an inherited share with Jesus on glory and honour, 
freedom to call me for any change. Uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, had a friend or a family member yourself have taken on a rescue pet. You've brought a pet into your family. When you, when you take that pet into you, you're not just saving them from lack of food or from a difficult life on the street. You're bringing them into a family that they get to experience the wholeness of that. Salvation includes far more than just being saved from something. It includes being saved into something, a situation of security and stability. So too, with our own salvation, we hope to be brought into the fullness of the glory of Jesus and his family. This salvation in which we hope will also include the dawning of resurrected life, a life free from the grief of all those bodily frailties and frustrations that we walked in here with this morning, the groanings and the griefs of our physical bodies. So too will Jesus bring us safely through the day of judgment when he returns. For those of us who entrust ourselves to Jesus, ours is a future marked by salvation rather than condemnation. Paul says, if you want to endure through this life, dress yourself in hope, in those promises that God has said he will deliver for us when the Lord Jesus returns. But on what grounds are we justified? What grounds do we really have? any good reason that this future hope of salvation is anything more than just wishful thinking. On what grounds is this hope? Not just a desperate longing for something that's a bit better than what we're stuck with now. Well, our hope for the future, I think, is grounded in what our faith is focused on. Have a look at me at verse 10. Verse 10. We read there that Jesus died for us. In the past, Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Our future, our hope for the future grows out of our faith, our trust in what Jesus' past death already achieved and delivered on. See, that's the thing about Christian hope. It's not just a vague longing that something will materialise in, in the future. It's a confidence that that future will grow out of what Jesus has already secured and guaranteed for us. He died our death for us. That is the ground out of which our future hope grows. Our faith in Jesus' past death for us, our trust that Jesus has already died our death, frees us from the fear that death might get hold of some kind of sway over our future destiny. Whether the believer is awake or not, or whether they are present or asleep. The dawning day of the resurrection awaits all those who have clothed themselves with faith in the truth that Jesus has already died their death for them. But this hope of hope and this breastplate of faith were actually not just for our benefit alone. I wonder if you noticed that. We haven't touched on one part of the clothing that is love. Have a look at me. I think of how this is given greater description, greater definition in verse 11, our final verse for this morning. Paul concludes this little section. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Is that not the embodiment of love, that third piece of armour that Paul has brought our attention to? We're to use whatever faith and hope God has dressed us in for the loving encouragement of others. Our faith and our 
isn't just there for our own sense of security, day to day, week by week. It's there so that we might be secure in order to love and encourage those around about us. Are you perhaps dressed in well-fitting faith, in hearty hope? Then God has dressed you that way so that you might lovingly devote yourself to encouraging those who are not as securely fitted out in faith and hope as you are. Is your faith perhaps this morning framed? Is your own hope perhaps spotted with holes? Then God has given these brothers and sisters around about you, alongside you, to lovingly encourage you to endure in faith and hope when yours feeling at its most we do not simply stand or fall on the strength of our own faith and hope alone. We're strengthened, encouraged to endure by the faith and hope of those who lovingly stand alongside us when we're buffeted by the most difficult moments of life. If your faith and hope is settled and secure, then we can't afford not to have you. I've often heard people say, no, no, I've, I've got a pretty settled and secure faith and hope. I don't need to be at church every week in order to endure in the Christian life. Friends, your faith and hope is not just for you. Those whose faith is framed, those whose hope has holes in it, they need you. Faith and the hope you have is so that you can love them in the midst of those moments. And friends, if your hope and faith are frail, if your being here is difficult, be assured of this, it gives others the opportunity to love you. And the truth is this as well, I know that probably there will be some of you who don't even believe this, but even your frail strength is encouraging and building others. Because what makes faith and hope genuine is not how strong it is in proportion to how others experience, but who that faith and that hope is placed in. I think I am never more encouraged in Christian world than when someone whose faith and hope is frail and difficult endures. That strengthens and encourages me like nothing else. Now perhaps we might wish that those around us might love us a little better than they do. If God is using even their just being as a way to build up all of these people and help them to endure until the Lord Jesus returns. His second part, his second name, faith, hope, and love. Dressed in those three, we need not fear being shamed when the day of the Lord dawns unexpectedly and suddenly upon us. Dressed in these three, faith, hope, and love, we have everything we need to endure until the day when Jesus' coming dawns gloriously upon our own weary and frail I thought what we'd do to finish off uh, our reflection on faith, hope, and love uh, this morning is to say together the Apostles' Creed. A creed declared what it is that we've placed our faith in, what it is that we've placed our hope in. 
Nobody else that we trust will strengthen us to endure until the Lord Jesus returns again. So can I invite you before we sing uh, to stand with me uh, and up on the screen.